chapters, there's a lot of narrative going on. Um, and so we're going to be kind of tackling them. So we're going to finish that up here uh, before December um, and then get into the, the Christmas season. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and take it out and open it to Acts chapter 22 and, um, or turn your, the app on your phone on to that chapter, Acts chapter 22. Uh, where this finds us is the, Paul's finished his third missionary journey he has gone to Jerusalem. He's brought the gift from the churches in Asia Minor. He has, um, uh, for the purpose of uh, benevolence of them, but also to bring unity between the churches. He's met with James and the elders. They suggest that, that there's rumors that have been going around about Paul teaching against the law. So he takes and pays for the haircut of four uh, gentlemen at the temple. Uh, there's misunderstanding, slander that takes place. He's taken in and the... Um, the the Roman um, the Roman tetrarch there what well, not tetrarch the, uh, the 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 commander they're trying to figure that out this is a third attempt to try to get at the facts of what's going on with Paul's accusations and the the squabble here and as we see and we read this earlier on in the uh, our scripture reading time in the service earlier but I want to read just verse. 11, uh, the encouragement, and we'll title this message, Encouragement at the End of a Bad Day. And so the following night, verse 11 says, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, or take heart. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you also testify, must, so must testify also in Rome. This is God's word. Father, would you help us now as we open the word? Lord, I pray that you'd use this in our lives, Lord. I pray that you'd teach us. Thank you for your spirit who um, gives us this truth and who will apply it to our lives. We ask that you would draw souls to yourself, draw Christians closer to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever started off something really well and then failed miserably? Um, when you think about the holiday season, often you think about food, at least that's what I think about, and I am so looking forward to the week after next and eating more than I should, and so I won't be speaking on gluttony after that, um, so that I won't be too much of a hypocrite. And um, I, I tell you what, some of my favorite things about being in ministry, dinner on the grounds right there, you know, um, uh, four reasons for being a pastor, dinner on the grounds, right? And um, uh, no, anyway, but I, there was one year, uh, I think, I don't think we had, did we have kids yet for this? No, no, we didn't have kids yet. And uh, we'd gone through the Christmas, the Thanksgiving, and then the Christmas season, and, and you've just eaten, and a lot of the sugar, and all this stuff. And so, um, bless her heart, Jamie had one of these fad diets that she wanted to try. And I used to have this rule that I would go along with her as long as I could cheat during lunch. And uh, we kind of go, we haven't done any of those really lately, but she was on one of these cleanse things that we need to do a cleanse after the the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you've eaten all this. And, and it was this cabbage soup type cleanse. And I don't know if you have heard about this, and I'm sure there's more science and she's laughed she, uh, to this, but it was supposed to like cleanse your system of all the bad things and, um, uh, you know, all the preservatives. And I'm like, how do you, if you want me to live longer, why do you keep wanting not, not to give me preservatives? I mean, this is, doesn't make sense. And, um, I'm joking. Um, anyway, so we did this, this cleanse thing. You're supposed to do this cabbage soup and you're supposed to do it for every meal for like 
five days or whatever, something like that, some type of purgatory. And um, anyway, so we did like one whole day and then through the night. And then the next morning, I was like so weak. And I had this, this soup for breakfast, and this is like fourth meal, and lunch went by, and I'm like lightheaded at work, and long story short, the end of the second day involved both of us eating large amounts of Chinese takeout, and it was a great evening after that, <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, we started off like, we're going to do this, we're going to be healthy, and uh, you start off really well, and then you ever seen some of those uh, those uh, memes on Facebook where they'll have like Tyrannosaurus Rex, and then they'll have the the one um, the the T Rex from uh, uh, Toy Story, the little thing, and they'll be like, you know, me uh, first five minutes in the morning, then me after I've seen this, and this shows the dinosaur like thing. And maybe you've had one of those type of uh, experiences where you know maybe you get up in the morning and you you you. you you read your Bible and you pray, and I've had these where I get up early, I read my Bible and I pray, and I pray that God would let me be spirit-filled that day and just show love to people and um, just, you know, just really just minister well and be a good pastor, and then I go upstairs and, you know, I find out that the five-year-old has gotten goop all over my, something that was important to me, and it's, and then you're just like, what were you thinking? And then everything was just gone, right? You ever had those? Um, you know, you're, 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 maybe you're thinking, um, you know, you're going to be spirit filled. You're going to approach a situation at work that might be hard and, you know, or something in your marriage. And then I'm going to respond with grace when he says that to me, I'm not going to be sarcastic or I'm not going to be accusatory to her when I get home from work. And, and then, and then you, you start off and then before you know it, you're saying this and you're accusing her of that. And you bring up an argument from 15 years ago and how she's just like her mother. And then you're like, and it's all over. You're like, I just prayed five minutes ago and I had this great plan how I was going to please Jesus, right? And you could spin that story in whatever situation you might be, that person at work or uh, going into family. You ever done that? You go to meet family at Thanksgiving or Christmas and you're like, you know, I'm just going to, God, give me grace. I just want to show love to them and I don't want to bring up this topic or that topic and I just want to get through the meal and, and we're all family here. And before the first course is done, someone brought it up and you're right in the middle of yelling about politics and this and that and child rearing and what they did with this and what they did what they should have done with grandpa's money and what they didn't do with grandpa's money and whatever it is and you're like five minutes ago I was walking with Jesus here and now it's all gone you ever had one of those days um and then on top of that then you start getting digs in you know like I've done that with the kids where you know, they, you touch this, you did this, and ah, and don't you have homework to do anyway? You know, and you kind of bring up all these side topics. Well, if you've been there, that's a little bit of what's going on in Paul's life, I believe, today in this passage. And Paul has his theology hammered out on this anvil of experience. And that's really where we see life working here. Um, and so 
There's two scenes in this text that we're going to look at. We're actually going to look at, uh, we, we, we read there at the end of chapter 30, of verse 30 of chapter 22 through verse 11. But then also the remainder of the chapter of chapter 23, we see this another episode. So there's two scenes. And when we look at narrative literature, we want to do that. But the key verse here that we want to focus on is verse 11 that we read before. And so the first thing we see here is uh, this, uh, this um, bef- Paul meeting with the Sanhedrin and his response to them. And then the second scene is this plot to kill the Jews that's uncovered and brought about because of Paul's nephew. And that's kind of an interesting thing that we want to look at there. That's a, kind of a, a tidbit of Bible trivia of Paul's nephew. So in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul starts off here. Now, this, this, think, Paul has been wrongly shamed. He is bent over backwards. He has, he, um, for, for the, Ju- the Jewish Christians that, that you know, he's, he's met, he's, he's gone along with James's suggestion. He's, he's done this, and then he's been beaten there. He narrowly escaped being flogged because, because he brought up, it's the end of chapter 22, that he's a Roman citizen. So they exempted him from being uh, scourged, both the flagellum. Um, so he's, he, he's, um, and then, and then, so he's gone through all of this, this travel. Um, I mean, he just brought this huge gift to the church at Jerusalem. And then on top of that, they ask him to go pay for these four guys to have their heads shorn and for their, their, their cleansing. So he's, but he's, he's taken all that. He's like, he's done a really good job at this. And, and, and so he's got a clear conscience about this. And so he even starts off talking. So then, so this is the third attempt by the commander to try to get at it. So he's tried to do it with, um, in public when Paul spoke and he thought that was, Paul gave his great testimony. He didn't lash out at anybody. He just gave his testimony. He expressed the facts. Um, they respond negatively. Paul brings him inside. He's not able to get at the facts there. He's like, well, I'll just beat the, beat it out of him. And then he finds out he's a Roman citizen, so we can't have him scourge. So now his third attempt is to tell you what, I'm going to pick him before the Sanhedrin and have them try him and he'll just listen in. So he as so the Roman commander is, um, uh, Lucius Claudius here. Uh, we, he, we see his name in this chapter. So Paul does really well, and he even starts out, he looks intently at the council, and he says, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So he starts off really well. I've got a good conscience. And one of the first things we see here that we'll see later on when we get to the next chapter is the importance of having a clear conscience before God, especially in serving him. Uh, God has given you a conscience and he's given you and as part of he's written that law on the conscience. Every man in Romans tells us that they're uh, accountable because God's given us a conscience. That's actually one of the um, arguments for the existence of God, that even in societies or people that would deny God in any type of law, they still feel guilty when they commit certain sins. Why is that? Because God has written a law on the conscience of all humanity. But our conscience can be uh, changed and set. And, and, you know, as Luther would say, his, his conscience is bound to Scripture. And so you're, uh, well, you know what? You all had a great experience with this this past week. The time changed. How many of you had a clock somewhere or another this week that had not had the time set that you kind of were like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? You know, you had that. I had that. You know, you had um, the one in the bathroom or the one that's something. Well, that one's still wrong. Uh, We still have time here Uh, because your conscience is like a clock. It's like an alarm clock. How many of you have accidentally set your alarm clock to go off at like a p.m. instead of an a.m.? Yeah. 
Uh, you, you met, it was set at the wrong thing. Your conscience is going to go off, but it needs to be set by something. So there are certain people, their, their conscience goes off about things it doesn't really need to go off for because it's not a violation of the Bible. Other people's consciences aren't going off when it should be going off because uh, they've not set it according to the Scripture. And so Paul will say later on how he works hard to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. But he says he has a clear conscience, but that's not where we're wanting to go at today. Right after this, uh, so um, he, th- so the the high priest Ananias. Now, this is the third high priest that we've seen at in Bible times here for Jesus. We saw uh, Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then an Ananias here, who uh, probably A.D. forty-eight to fifty-nine is when he ruled. He was known as being a, a hothead, hot-tempered, kind of a brutal, a lover of money. Uh, not a very good high priest. And the high priest commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that this was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So I've read a, a, a good number of commentaries and heard some different folks about this, and, and it's all over the board of what this means here. So um, at first, early in the week when I was studying this, you know, we talked about how, you know, when Paul was headed to Jerusalem and, and uh, Agabus and the people were saying, don't go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you, don't go. And, and we talked about the theme, what the lesson for us was that sometimes we need to be willing to face danger for the sake of the gospel. And then when Paul was in Jerusalem and they're saying, hey, there's this misunderstanding about you. Um, uh, we, 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 and the, you need to do this with these guys with their haircut. We said that the theme there and the big idea for us in our lesson takeaway was that we need to be willing to face misunderstanding for the sake of unity uh, in the church. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to have a third point that's going to be the big idea that's going to fit that perfectly. So I always thought my, the big idea behind the sermon this week is going to be that we need to be willing to face political animosity for the sake of our conscience. And, um, but then I thought, you know, how Paul did that and what a great thing. But then I started thinking about Paul's reaction here. Now, so he starts off, great day. Brothers, he's courteous to them. He's respectful to them. He's prepared. He's endured so much already. Brothers, I've got a clear conscience before you. And brothers, I've lived before you with a good conscience to this day. And before he can even finish his, his sentence, he gets smacked up beside the face. Now, you want to get someone mad, you hit him in the face, right? And I, and I don't know, some of you guys have maybe, you know, your mouth's gotten you in trouble and you've got hit in the face a few times as a kid or something like that. But uh, I can imagine some of that with some of you that might have happened. I'm just, no, 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 any? Okay. Um, so, um, but he says this. And before it's like, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, we like to think that Paul is this great Christian guy. And he is. I mean, he's incredible. And I even hate to even bring, think of this because it's kind of like, wow, you know. But like, I, I tried to imagine how Paul could have said what he said in like a purely godly, loving way, you know. You know, you just get smacked upside the face. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I mean, I mean, how do you say that? I, I kind of think it was kind of like 
he gets smacked. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You know, I mean, it's something like that. Some type of anger or something going on here. I kind of, that's what I kind of see going on here. So, um, and then it says, they say, well, you, you said this about the high priest. And he says, I didn't recognize him to be the high priest. So then I'm like, well, how did Paul not recognize him to be the high priest? Well, there's a few different reasons that different commentators give. One is that, you know, Paul was out of town a lot. He really hasn't been in Jerusalem that much in the last 20 years. So he didn't know what this guy looked like, and he's there. Um, possibly. Uh, it's early in the morning. It's, it's a, a meeting that's called. It's not a normal meeting, so it's probably a dimly lit room. Uh, the Bible already tells us that Paul has some problems with his eyesight, so maybe he didn't notice and didn't see who it was, possibly. Um, some people say Paul is being ironic and sarcastic. You know, like what type of high priest would say that? You're, you know, it's kind of like, um, you, you know, the, the, you know the, you see someone out, the kids are saying something like, oh, yeah, you're the Iwana teacher. Uh-huh, you know, and after you did something you shouldn't have done, or, you, oh, you're the pastor. Yeah, sure, great job. Great example, pastor. You know, and, and there's some irony in Paul's voice. Any way you try to explain this, one, one, another thought is because, um, you know, because they weren't dressed the way they would normally be dressed. So, you know, um, you know, it's their day off. So uh, um, Ananias shows up in, you know, jeans and a flannel instead of his normal robes as the high priest, right? You know, he's not dressed for work. Um, uh, or he is dressed and he has the white robes on, and that's Paul can only, because he has bad eyesight, he looks across and he just sees this blur of white, you know, you whitewashed wall. But it's hearkening that the Jews would whitewash tombs. But any way you want to explain him saying he doesn't recognize the high priest, the way Paul responds does not sound like Jesus did when Jesus was in a similar situation. When Jesus is brought before the high priest and all the, the sham trials that Jesus went through, doesn't sound like that. And as Peter says, how when Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And so he's not really being like Jesus. Um, but he does say, and, he, and when they say this, he's like, you know, we're not to speak evil of the ruler of your people. And that's another application for us. That, and it doesn't seem like God ever did away with that uh, prohibition that we shouldn't speak evil of the, our rulers. It doesn't mean we need to be, speak untruthfully or, 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 or say things to, you know, the, to blow smoke or whatnot. As we talked about last week, the importance of showing respect towards law enforcement officers. And there's something there about that as well. Well, what I believe we see is we get to see a little bit of the feet of clay of Paul. We get to see the hum- human side of Paul. And, and what I love about this is, well, one, it makes um, me feel like I fit in a little bit better. Because sometimes when you see these heroes and they never mess up, um, you're like, well, how can I serve God? And maybe you're like that, too. Um, the Bible is very transparent. It's one of the reasons we believe that the Bible has inspired the very word of God. Because... Well, let's just say the Bible doesn't Photoshop its heroes. You know, you see these pictures of somebody, and it's like, that's not what they look like in real life. Um, there's, there's no Photoshopping here. There's not, I mean, the Bible, when, when Luke is giving us an orderly account of what happened with the apostles and the acts of the apostles and Paul, uh, he's not putting Instagram filters on what happened. He's not only showing the good things and when they're all dolled up, you know, and um, and have that steaming cup of coffee that's got the perfect little heart shape with their Bible open, smiling. 
you know, and that's their picture for the day on, uh, you know, uh, on the Instagram as it's filtered so you don't see any blemishes in their skin. Um, you don't see that. Um, I remember one time my sister-in-law, and, and I, I, I don't want to embarrass people with sermon illustrations, but if they're not here, um, I'm, jo- I'm, I'm joking. My sister-in-law lived with us uh, for three years, and um, she went on a date with this guy. He's a really nice guy. He's a pastor in Colorado now. Um, he wasn't married then, and she wasn't married then. And um, anyway, um, his dad did uh, photo. He was a photographer and did photo editing and stuff like that. And he even did some stuff with the court system and things like that. And and he had done some promotional items for their church. And one of the things I knew he did for their church was they took a picture of their pastor and put it on this brochure that they handed out. But he's like, ah, I think pastors should look a little taller and a little thinner. So he kind of made him look a little. And I was like whoa, there's going to be all these people coming thinking they, 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 Captain America is the pastor there, and then they show up and it's the pre-serum Captain America, you know? And, um, and, um, and But anyway, so they took a picture, and my sister-in-law sat on this uh, ledge, and her skirt came up a little bit. And so when the dad put this together, she's like, oh, I bet she'd be a little embarrassed by that, so I'm going to move her skirt down. But all my sister-in-law could hear is like, his dad thinks I had too short a skirt on, and I need to fix my skirt with his Photoshop thing. But that's not, none of that happens in the Bible here. You see God's, God's Character is warts and all. You see David in his best and when he's worth, and you see Paul in his best and in his worst. And we see a little bit of that there, that he's human. There's a little bit of Rocky Four in here when you see this, when you see he's not a machine, he's a man, that Paul's gone from one mission trip to another and one mission trip to another, and he just keeps going, and you're like, does this guy ever get frustrated? And I think we see a little bit of that going on here in Paul's life. Paul's great beginning turned bad after he's struck. And it doesn't end there because it gets worse in verse 6. It says, And then when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out counsel in, the, in, to, in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees, and with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial. Now, is the, is the resurrection a key part of the gospel? And was this a driving force in his things? Yes. Is he theologically right? Yes. Is, is what he's saying, there, is there this thing going on? Was this the best time and tactic? Was this a great political time to bring that up? Yes. Was that probably the best motive in time? Probably not. Um, he responds to this animosity by setting them at odds with one another. Have you ever done this in a fight? This is kind of the, you have something, someone says something you don't like, they say something, and you bring up something that you know is going to, like, stir it all up, you know, and there's a million uh, illustrations that could come to mind about this. Um, Everything he says is true. Everything he says is theologically accurate. And some of us are really good at this. We know how to say the right thing. Well, I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't say anything untruthful. Isn't that true that this? And, And yes, he could say all that. Um, But his ploy to direct the attention off of himself also removed the possibility of him giving more witness to the Jews at this time. And so um, this goes on. Well, and then what? So they, of course, you know, the debate that you learned in Sunday school that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they were sad, you see because uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and, so, and so there is it. Now, you also see something there of the religious traditionalist 
um, that not just we believe in traditions that they're from the Bible, but when it border goes to traditionalism, where it's just dead, um, you have that going on there. And those are some of the meanest people out there. And then the other type of meanest people out there are religious liberals and those that deny truths of the Bible. And sometimes I wonder, what are these Sadducees even doing? I mean, I, I, I've often wondered this, like, there, I mean, when we live in a town with a lot of liberal Protestants and we live in a, a communities with this, I've often wondered, like, if you didn't believe in the authority of the Bible and the, 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 the exclusivity of Christ and um, the, um, you, you know, the, the need for a substitutionary death and the, to have a conversion experience, why would you even become a pastor? Like, why would you even want to do that? I mean, I, I mean, if this stuff, if this book's not true, we all have better things to do with our Sunday mornings. And so I've often wondered, why are these, you know, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe in like the, the, the um, things in the, the supernatural things in the Bible, what, why even hold to that? Uh, but you have that going on here. But in, in either way, uh, Paul goes through this and uh, the Pharisees come take up, up for him and then, um, and when, verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, or meaning the commander of the, the Romans, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to take him away from them and force him to bring him back into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. So here's what's going on. Maybe you've had one of those days where you start off good, then it gets bad, and then you just mix it up and it's bad. And yeah, you might not have said anything technically wrong or technically a lie or whatever, but it gets late at night, everybody goes to bed, and you can't sleep. And you're kind of wondering, and you're thinking. And Paul might have been thinking, you know, here he is with his fat lip (laughs) and his uh, swollen lips, you know. He's doing the perfect duck lips. He just got hip side the face. Those pictures really, those duck lips really quack me up. <laughs> um, they, um, anyway, so he's, he's literally got a swollen lip here. He's been hit upside the face. He's sitting in the barracks. He might think, yeah, I know I was right. And yeah, that guy was wrong. And he was not using the law right by saying, having him struck without being, you know, asking the questions. And yeah, it's true that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and that the gospel's part of it, he's like, but did I really need to do it that way? Did I really need to lash out that way? Did I really need to bring up that and stir that up? You know, and if he's put this in modern times, he's sitting there thinking, looking at his WWJD bracelet, thinking, well, that's not what Jesus would have done in this situation, was it? You know, um, did he, he's like, did I take the easy way out with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Did I really just kind of ruin it there? And he's feeling down. And Jesus encourages him at the end of a bad day. And he says, he starts off there, be of good cheer, the authorized says, or take courage, or take heart, or some other ways that that's translated. Now, something interesting about this is that Jesus is the only one that really uses that phrase in the New Testament. And Paul's been visited by Jesus several times in the book of Acts, and uh, given visions of things. But this is a w- one particular phrase that Jesus uses and is used several times to encourage people. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a bedridden paralytic. And Jesus comes and says, be of good cheer or take courage or take heart. Same phrase, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 
uh, 14, there's the, um, I, 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 don't, I think I have the ref- reference right, but the disciples are afraid. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm's tossing, and Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Another passage when there's the woman with the issue of blood or the 12-year hemorrhage. And Jesus comes to her and says that phrase, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you whole. In the upper room in John 16, the night of the, that he's taken into custody before the crucifixion, Jesus says to the disciples, Take courage, for I have overcome the world. So even after all this stuff, the violence, the outbursts, the regrets, the disappointments, the, hot, the hostilities, the swollen lips, the fat, fat mouth, all of this bothered conscience of Paul, Jesus still comes uh, and says, take heart. For as you has testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. This is a wonderful message of encouragement that Jesus brings to him. And there's some huge lessons for us in this. It's a message of, that strengthens him, it kind of restores him. It kind of says, I haven't forgotten about you. And even, aren't you glad that God uses people that mess up? You know, after all of that, all the things we named about Paul, and I might be reading it, we might, I, I'm not, the text doesn't tell us his motives, and, but we're kind of conjecturing there. But either way, all those things, have you ever done what some of those things Paul did? starting off good, responding negatively, stirring the pot a little bit. You know, I've done that. I've done that with some of you. I've done that with some of you in church meetings. And and hopefully I've come to you and asked for forgiveness. And if I hadn't, I hope I'll do that or you'll let me know that I haven't yet. Or, you know, and some of you have done the same things. We've all all done this. Um. But Jesus comes and says, take courage. So it's a message of restoration. It's a message of, of, of support that, hey, uh, you, I'm with you in this. You've, 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 you've testified to me about the facts of Jerusalem here. You've done what you've called. And, and, it's, it's a, and Paul might be thinking, well, am I done now? I messed up. I'm here. I got the flat, fat lip, and I'm in the barracks, and I can't do anything. And then, but he says, no, it's also a stimulant. This message is a stimulant or motivation that you're going to do this in Rome also. Now, the last time that Paul was seemed discouraged, they needed encouragement, was when he was in Corinth. And he, and he had that, the, 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 Jesus came to him then and said, hey, uh, take, be encouraged. I have much people in this city. That there's a, there's a sovereignty of God for people to be reached. And he's kind of doing the same thing, that I'm in control. And just like I said and gave you that burden to take the gospel to Rome, it's going to happen. And we're going to see in subsequent chapters that even when he has shipwreck, Paul still holds this. Hey, I'm supposed to take the gospel to Rome. So he even says to those when they're in the big storm, guys, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I'm supposed to take the gospel to Rome and it's going to happen. So, you know, hang on. You're just long for the ride. Now, we might have to get shipwrecked along the way, but, you know, we're still going to get there. And uh, so, so there's a, the stimulant there. Take courage. I'm not done with you yet. I've got plans for you. Um. We talked a little bit of this on Wednesday night, that trusting God for who you are, that God, who you are and what you are, that God has those plans for you. And we could trust him for that. And so to see this. And then we see an, a, another great example of this happened here uh, towards the end of the, um, this chapter from verses 12 to 24. I want to tell the story here. So 
And the days, verse 12 says, the Jews made a plot to bound themselves by an oath needed to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to not taste no food till we have killed Paul. And now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you so that you are going to examine the case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes. And now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this man that he was able to say something to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you had to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow and thought you were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and they have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man and charged him, tell no one you have informed me of these things. Now this is a wonderful thing here where um, Paul, God provides the remedy for Paul's predicament. That there is a conspiracy that's about to take place. Um, that these these men who weren't able to kill Paul there um, have a conspiracy that we're going to retry him and we're going to have them bring him out. And then on the way, we're going to be waiting and jump him and kill him. But I want you to know, sometimes we pray and we love to hear testimonies and read missionary stories of these huge, miraculous, out-of-the-ordinary things that God does to to propel the gospel forward or something like that. But sometimes we forget that most of the time God just uses ordinary, ordinary means. Um, he works in little things. And sometimes, um, literally through little people, uh, that God, so we, don't, we don't know uh, who is Paul's sister. Is she a believer? I, mean, I didn't even know Paul had a sister and now he's got a nephew. The Bible doesn't tell us all this. We, we do know he talks about his kinsmen in Israel, so he had family, you know, and so, um, so Paul has a nephew. How does his nephew find out that Paul's in prison? I, I, I don't know, I and mean, maybe it was because uh, he, he was from a wealthy family, so they would have had more visitation rights or something like that, or being Roman citizens had that, but any, his nephew comes in and, and finds out about it, and he sends uh, his nephew to uh, the, the commander, and, they, and, and what, what I love about that is that the tribune took him by the hand. The, tri- the tribune, so I'm guessing that this is not, I mean, how old is Paul's nephew? I don't know. I'm just guessing because he took him by the hand and let him out that he wasn't a teenager. He's probably, I- I'm thinking, I have, a, I have an eight-year-old son, so I'm thinking he's eight, year, eight years old. So I'm thinking he's, got this, he's bringing him out. He's like, hey, what's going on, buddy? What's going on? He's, hey, you got this guy, and they're going to kill him. And Oh, thanks. Don't tell anybody you came here. I'm, I'm seeing that kind of thing happen there. But the, the Tribune is, is actually very courteous and doesn't just do it publicly and takes the little boy off to the side and is kind to him. Um, God provided this remedy to fulfill the, what, the encouragement of verse 11 that you must testify me in Rome through his nephew. You never know what means God might use to keep up the plans he has for your life. Um, the government. I mean, I mean, th- these Roman soldiers are more committed to justice and fair trial than the Jews are. 
Uh, they're more committed to justice than these religious people. Um, some would, um, some some would not. I mean, sometimes the meanest people in the world are traditional religious people, uh, and and I mean, you guys have probably had that that you you have some unsafe people that are nicer to you than some re- supposed religious people, and um, and there's a little bit about that going that you see here. Um, but in the midst of all of this animosity and all of this violence and this threat and this, I mean, you think of how scared Paul would feel by this, knowing that there's these plots going on. And in the midst of that, we see that God's plans are not going to be thwarted. God's sovereignty can't be changed. God's still in control. And then, so the, they, they send a letter down. They send him down to this cat named Felix. Um, to, for him to be tried down at Caesarea. And they send him down, and so they do it in two stages, and they do it, they leave at night. And maybe some of you, your parent, you like to travel in the middle of the night. They travel in the middle of the night, take him so far, and then the cavalry takes him the rest of the way in. And they take him down there, and that's how he gets out. But for, for, for our lesson for today, we'll get into some of that with the, the he's un, under house arrest there in Caesarea, and then we go on, we'll get into that n- next week. But... What I want to back up and apply to us today is this. That just like Paul started off well, messed up, he's discouraged, and Jesus comes to him at the end of the day in verse 11 and gives him encouragement. So Christ meets us in the night, on our good days and on our bad days. When we've done okay, when we've done okay in our Christian walk, and when we've made a royal mess of it and ruined the whole thing. And you almost like he could say, take courage. I'm not done with you yet. I still have a plan for you. It might not be to go to Rome, but it might be to go to a Rome that he has picked out for you. For a plan that Jesus might have for your life. And Paul's experience is similar to the uh, three Hebrew children. That they're in the midst of the fire, but one that looks as, as the Son of God is with them. Isaiah 43 says this way, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. That God promises to give us protection and for his plans that he have for us. Um, what we see happening here in Paul's life is his shadow shows up. And we all have a shadow. That's that sin flesh. That, uh, that, that's the us. Uh, that that shows up. Uh, we sometimes we put our heroes and our leaders on a pedestal, and we think, man, they can never mess up, and they're just perfect photoshopped people. And then we find out that, man, they're not. You know, you, maybe you see that when you you'll see that come across the internet, or you get to meet a celebrity or a politician comes to town, and you're kind of like, oh, you see them in real life. It's like, well, I thought they'd be taller. You know, I, I thought they wouldn't. You know, wouldn't have as much acne. You know. They never have acne on TV. Um, what, 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 what's with that? And they see, or the, the temperament, the, the jerkiness, the impatience, the you whitewashed wall, you know, the, those statements coming out. Uh, that's part of, you have a shadow, I have a shadow. Um, everything, your background, your parents, your traditions, your, how you react to things, that's all makes up our shadow. And we all kind of get scared when we see our own shadow in our lives and it gets really discouraging, right? 
And even Christians, we have that, even though that the light's been turned in our heart, on in our hearts, and we, we know that we stand before Jesus totally righteous, before God totally righteous, and Jesus righteous, we still have indwelling sin in us that we're wrestling with and growing, and sometimes that sin shows up in a shadow that really scary, scares us and discourages us, and we're in the middle late at night, and we need this encouragement like Jesus gives here. Well, there's a story that ancient um, historians tell about um, of Alexander the Great, that there's some horse traders that come and are showing horses to uh, in the court of Philip, who was Alexander the Great's father. And they bring this particular horse in, who's a black horse, and he's beautiful, he's strong, and they bring him and show him before the king's horsemen. But this horse is vicious, it's violent, it, it, it's not, it's, kicking everywhere it's it's not calming down at all and the king's horsemen are ready to reject this horse and alexander is watching from a distance and he comes up and he asks permission to take that horse and ride it and they're all kind of startled at this but they notice that and he's noticed as he's been watching this horse that this horse is scared of its own shadow and every time this horse moves, it sees its own shadow and it jumps and kicks and he's nervous and anxious and things like this. And so they, and he takes the horse and turns it towards the sunlight to where it can't see its own shadow. He jumps on the horse and rides it perfectly and trots it and gallops before and from the king. Uh, and they're like, wow, what a wonderful, beautiful horse that we would want. And I think uh, like that horse, that we've got shadows and maybe you start off living the Christian. Maybe you were going through that like kind of like Paul. Well, man, I started off. I wanted to live I mean, my parenting or my finances or my how I talk to people, my relationships at work or whatever it might be, family. And your shadow's showing up. And it's really discouraging when you have your own shadow showing up. And just like that horse needed to be turned into the sunlight to not see its own shadow, there's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. And the same thing like our own shadow. That sometimes what we need is Christ to come meet us and say, Take courage, for you've testified to the facts. And you must testify to also me in Rome. Take courage. You're still his. He still has a plan for you. The gospel is true. And so there's things like we just sang this morning. I run to Christ when stalked by sin and find a sure escape. Deliver me, I cry to him. Temptation yields to grace. I run to Christ when plagued by shame with my own shadow and find my one defense. I bore God's wrath. He pleads my case, my advocate and friend. And this is something where the gospel has something to say to us about some things. Um, Jerry Bridges said it this way. He said, in the midst of, our, of God's work and our struggle with indwelling sin, we must always keep in mind that our status and favor and friendship with God is always and ever will be based on the objective work of Christ for us as our representative and substitute. Basically, the way God sees me is not whether I had a good day and whether I kept messed up afterwards with how Jesus sees me in the gospel. 
And the gospel has something to say to be about my good days and my bad days. And this is where the gospel speaks. Because on my best days, when I've had a good day, when I've read my Bible, when I feel like I've walked with God and walked in the Spirit and not responded negatively and spoke lovingly, on those days when I'm tempted to be prideful in that, oh, I'm doing pretty good, you know? The, the gospel is the only basis you have for this is what Jesus has done. And on your bad days, when you wanted to, and you just ruined it, and maybe even someone says something at work and says, I thought you were a Christian. And, and you're just so defeated. And you blew it with your kids or whatever, and you're sitting there at night, and you're see, just seeing your own shadow. But the gospel reminds you that the, your standing before God is not based on what, how you live today or this past week, but on what Jesus has done for us. So on our bad days, the gospel encourages us. And on our good days, the gospel humbles us. I want to recommend a book and read a little section to it. This is called uh, A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. And he really kind of walks through applying the gospel to us and preaching the gospel to ourselves every day and then kind of gives some narrative things in any way. So this is a great resource. It's a little short little book, but I want to read a little thing. Resting in Christ's righteousness. So imagine yourself like Paul sitting here in, in this barracks after you've kind of said the right thing the wrong way. You feel discouraged. You kind of ruined it. Your shadow is there. He says, the gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God. A standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. The gospel also reminds me that my righteous standing with God always holds firm regardless of my performance, because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus and not mine. On my worst days of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace towards me. And on my best days of victory and usefulness, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not mine. And so I maybe you're like me, and you need to be encouraged at the end of a bad day in a similar way that Paul was here, that Jesus is there. This is a message of encouragement, support, and also something to stimulate that God's not done with you yet. And he loves to use broken, messed up people with shadows. So turn from your shadows and look to Christ. Gaze on his face. And as the hymn says, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? And where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free for the wonderful grace of Jesus rescues Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your wonderful grace. Lord, I pray that there would be those in this room who are discouraged maybe by how they've lived their Christian life this week, that they, like that horse, would not be scared of its shadow, but they'd turn to the light of your Son, and they'd be reminded of the gospel's work in their lives and that their standing before you is in Christ and not their own performance. Lord, I pray for someone here who might not know you. And I pray that they would see what a wonderful Savior who uses messed up people. And maybe someone who's, who's thought 
the church is full of hypocrites and people that don't always live right. But that shouldn't be something to discourage us from coming to you. It should be something that encourages us that, that you, you love to use broken vessels. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we're just going to take some time to respond in our seats. You respond as God would lead you.